3: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
4: A summer's day turns deadly when a toddler is attacked by a microscopic monster.
0: I thought that she was going to die. It was like death was there, like death was imminent.
4: A firefighter's family is torn apart by a single celled killer that lives all around us.
1: I just knew my husband was fighting and fighting for his life.
4: And a teenager could lose her sight when a horde of hungry worms invades her eye.
5: She's saying, No, I can't see, Mom. I just broke down and
4: cried. Three very different parasites, one shared strategy. They hide in plain sight they are waiting to strike. They are everywhere. They are the lurkers. Parasites are organisms that survive by living and feeding off other creatures called hosts.
6: All parasites face the same challenge. They need to get to a host and reproduce. The most cunning parasites have a brilliant strategy to do this. They sit and wait, ready to attack at a moment's
4: notice. Parasites lurk everywhere even in your own backyard, as one Oregon family is about to find out. 2009, Steve and Jenny Hastings live with their three-year-old daughter Camber in remote Jefferson, Oregon.
0: We live in a farming community with lots of horses and a lot of farms.
7: It's a country setting and we have a a field and a, a
4: large backyard. The family keeps animals on their farm, and even have their own well.
0: We are outside constantly. We have a garden, we play on our play structure, we swim in the pool, and just spend a lot of time outside.
4: On the surface, their life seems idyllic, but they have no idea that a deadly intruder is lurking, ready to strike. One night in the middle of summer, Jenny and Steve are sound asleep in bed when they are awoken by a strange noise.
0: I woke up to the sound of choking. Camber had crawled in bed with Steve and myself, and she really violently threw up just right on him.
7: I knew that she was not feeling good.
0: I started getting a little bit worried. Steve takes Camber into the bathroom. As she continued to throw up, it just started to dawn on me that this was an incredible amount
4: of, of throw-up for such a little girl. Over the next four hours, the vomiting gets steadily worse.
0: she had never been sick like this before. I count down the hours. At 8 o'clock, I'm calling the doctor's office. I explained that Camber is really sick. And right away, the doctor tells me that it sounds like the 24-hour flu. Kids her age get it all the time. I've never experienced a child with stomach flu, so I didn't think anything was abnormal. They tell me to give her lots of fluids and continue to watch her.
4: Jenny follows doctor's orders, but after two days in bed, Camber's condition has not improved. And when Jenny goes to check on her, she is worried by what she finds.
0: I walked into the room and the way she was laying was exactly the same way I left her. It was like she hadn't even moved.
4: Concerned that Camber might be seriously ill, Jenny rushes her daughter to the local emergency room. But as they wait to be seen, Camber gets even worse.
0: The medical assistant comes in, and she starts taking her vital signs. She tells me that Camber's heart rate was erratic. It was off the charts for what a heart rate should be for somebody that size and age. And it was due to being extremely dehydrated the nurse tells me that she needed to get IV fluids immediately. And that was a really scary moment.
4: The fluids help Camber's heartbeat return to normal. And after three days in the hospital, the doctors decide that she is well enough to go back home. They tell Jenny that Camber just has a bad case of stomach flu, and that she will get better on her own. But Jenny's not convinced.
0: I'm so frustrated that they're actually bringing me the papers to discharge her. I have never seen anybody as sick as this in my life. This is not a stomach bug. This is not the stomach flu.
4: But Jenny is powerless to overrule the doctor's decision. Back home, Camber's vomiting returns with a vengeance and it's not long before she has the worst bout of diarrhea Jenny and Steve have ever seen.
0: This was not any type of diarrhea that I've ever seen in my entire life. It was literally like a a thick, bright yellow color.
4: It would just go all over the bed, and we kept having to change the sheets over and over and over again. The next morning, Jenny calls the doctor for help.
0: The girl that takes the message says she'll have her return the call. That happened five times that day. I was so frustrated, I could not believe that they were not calling me back.
4: As Jenny is trying to decide what to do next, Camber crawls into the kitchen.
0: At this point, I recognize, okay, we're about to have another episode, but this time, as she throws up, she has diarrhea. It is coming out of every part of the diaper overflowing, she's throwing up on me across the room, and it hits the wall and it's dripping off the wall. And she's screaming because at this point she slips in it and falls back.
4: Camber is in desperate need of medical attention.
0: I basically picked her up and we go to the only children's hospital that I can think of, which is Emanuel Children's Hospital in
4: Portland. But Portland is a two-hour drive from Jefferson.
0: I was honking the horn and weaving through traffic, and I was just praying that maybe an officer would pull me over and I could tell them so we could get there faster.
4: As Jenny rushes her sick daughter to the hospital, Camber's condition nosedives.
0: We're about halfway there, and I look up in the rearview mirror and look at Camber, and she is looking forward but she didn't respond to my voice. That moment when I couldn't get her to respond, it was like like death was there. Like death was imminent. I thought that it was going to happen. She was going to die on that car ride.
3: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
4: Three-year-old Camber Hastings has been struck down by a devastating bout of vomiting and diarrhea. Desperately worried, her mother Jenny rushes her to the hospital in Portland.
0: I thought that it was going to happen. She was going to die on that car ride.
4: By the time they reach the hospital, Camber is barely conscious.
0: I'm thinking that my little girl is so sick, and nobody can tell me what's wrong with her. The hope was that I'm getting her to a children's hospital, and they're going to be able to fix her. They're going to know what to do.
4: On call is pediatric specialist Dr. Megan Keneally.
0: In a patient Camber size, When you have that many diarrhea stools in a 24-hour period, you get um, pretty dehydrated.
4: But dehydration isn't Camber's only problem. In the ER, the doctors place Camber on a set of scales to check her weight.
0: I look down, and it reads 19.5, and my heart sank. She was 30 pounds the day before her symptoms started. I had no idea that she had lost a third of her body weight.
4: Unless Dr. Keneally and her colleagues find out what's making Camber so sick, she could die. Pathologists begin a series of tests on Camber's stool sample. But a complete workup could take two days. Two days that Camber might not have. I'm just thinking how much more can her little body go through without her giving up. 24 hours later, the results are back.
0: About halfway through my rounds, I got a call from the lab saying that Camber Hastings' stool was positive for Cryptosporidium. When she tells me this, I immediately wanted to look it up to see what this disgusting thing could be that was invading my little girl.
4: Cryptosporidium parvum is a single-celled parasite that wreaks havoc when it gets into the human gut. The parasite attaches to the lining of the small intestine and prevents the host from absorbing nutrients. The body's immune system tries to rid itself of the parasite, causing severe diarrhea and vomiting. But this response can make the situation worse. The constant diarrhea pushes
6: nutrients out of the body and that can cause malnutrition or even death.
4: Healthy adults can often recover from a cryptosporidium infection without drugs. But for the elderly, the immunocompromised and the very young, it can be fatal. To kill the parasite, camber is started on a course of powerful antiparasitic drugs. But camber isn't the only one in danger. Cryptosporidium is highly infectious, and doctors are concerned that the entire family might have been exposed to the parasite. They must track down the source of the infection. They start by examining the parasite's life cycle. Cryptosporidium begins as a free-living cyst in water or soil. The cyst is eaten by a host, often a cow. Once inside the cow, the cyst multiplies in the intestines. When the cysts are passed back into the environment with the cow's feces, the life cycle repeats. Once
6: in the environment, the parasite's protective coating allows it to survive up to six months. That allows it to lie in wait until conditions are perfect for an attack.
4: The most common way for cryptosporidium to infect a human is through contaminated water. Up to 95% of swimming pools, lakes, and ponds contain traces of the parasite. Dr. Keneally suspects that is how the parasite infected camber.
0: I notified the public health department of their county who would test the waters that she had been exposed to.
4: Just hours after the diagnosis, Jenny gets a call from the county health department.
0: They explained to me that they needed to backtrack and get the source of this immediately.
4: When health officials arrive at the Hastings home, they focus their attention on the family's well.
0: She tells me that she's going to need to test our water.
4: The Hastings don't drink from the well, but they do use it for bathing. And when the water is tested, the results are staggering.
0: The county was able to confirm that the water source had been infected with cryptosporidium.
4: An examination of the well's structure reveals exactly how the parasite got into the water.
0: The casing in the well had cracked, which meant there was a groundwater contamination to the well water.
4: Camber most likely became infected by accidentally drinking contaminated well water while playing in her kiddie pool. After eight days in the hospital, Camber is finally parasite-free and on the road to recovery. She's discharged and life slowly returns to normal for the Hastings.
0: Although it took a little bit of time for her to get all of her weight back, she is completely normal today. She's just back out to being her normal, outgoing little self.
4: And Steve and Jenny install a new filtration system in their well. It uses ultraviolet light, which kills cryptosporidium. In the United States, cryptosporidium infects up to 8,000 people every year. In less developed parts of the world, the rate of infection is much higher.
6: Cryptosporidium is found in fresh water all over the world. It can live in backyards, in swimming pools, even in tap water. And when it gets in the water system, it can reach a
4: huge number of hosts at once. Most people who get infected with Cryptosporidium do survive. The best way to avoid contracting this parasite is to maintain good personal hygiene, especially after using the bathroom or coming into contact with soil or fresh water. Cryptosporidium isn't the only microscopic parasite that lurks around us. Others are even deadlier, as one California family is about to learn. Fall, 2007, Murrieta, California. Sherry Moore is the mother of three teenagers, Alyssa, Brandon, and Trent. Her husband, Matt, works as a firefighter. As a family, they like to spend time together.
1: We like having a family-friendly atmosphere, just all the kids here and swimming and goofing off. And It's kind of crazy, but it's, it's fun.
0: My parents really um, like strive to make this a fun, kid-friendly house, you know.
4: It's early November. Sherry is at home with the kids. Matt is finishing up at the station after a day putting out a wildfire. She doesn't know it but he's already locked in a battle with a deadly enemy.
1: He just came home on November 14th and he was sick. He was a little sicker than just a regular cold.
0: He just looked like he had like the flu and he was just kind of like out of it. And um, he was throwing up a lot.
4: But for Sherry and her family, Matt's flu-like symptoms don't come as a surprise. Matt has an autoimmune condition that occasionally causes flus and colds. The episodes always pass quickly, and Matt and Sherry are confident that this will be no different.
1: He just took regular cold medicine, and he stayed home and rested. He thought he was fine, and that it would just pass, you know, in a few days.
4: But after five days in bed, Matt's symptoms have not improved. In fact, they've gotten worse.
1: He just was complaining that his head hurt so bad. He said it didn't feel like a migraine. It felt worse than migraine. It was just scary because he never complained of headaches that bad, ever. I was afraid that he was having an aneurysm.
4: Concerned for her husband's health, Sherry rushes Matt to the local ER. By the time they arrive, it's clear that Matt is seriously ill. But with what?
1: I was thinking, please do whatever you can to find out what's wrong with him.
4: The doctors run a battery of tests and quickly arrive at a diagnosis.
1: About an hour and a half later, they figured out that he had meningitis.
4: Meningitis is an inflammation of the lining of the brain and spinal cord. It's usually triggered by an infection of some kind, such as a virus or a bacteria, and often clears up on its own. The doctors give Matt painkillers, and Sherry takes him home.
1: They figured he should be better in five or six days. We kept thinking it's just going to pass.
4: But two weeks later, Matt is still no better. Sherry and Matt head back to the ER.
1: It was awful because he was feeling so sick. I was begging pretty much for a nurse or a doctor to come and look at him because he wasn't right.
4: This time, the doctors decide to test Matt's spinal fluid. The results are terrifying. The spinal fluid pressure is six times higher than normal, indicating that the lining of the brain is now severely inflamed. The only way to relieve the pressure is to drill a hole in his skull.
1: They realized that he was so close to death at that point. It was really scary.
4: The procedure works and the pressure subsides But the agonizing headaches remain.
1: I don't know what's wrong, but I know something's wrong. And I don't know medicine, but I know my husband.
4: If doctors can't figure out what's causing Matt's brain to swell, he could die. In a desperate attempt to control the swelling, his doctors administer a cocktail of powerful antibiotics. But the drugs don't help. And Sherry can tell her husband is getting worse by the minute
1: he wasn't getting any better and it didn't make sense. I had no idea what it could be. I, I just knew in my heart it wasn't meningitis.
4: When Matt's fellow firefighter, Mike Samuels, comes to visit, he is stunned by what he sees. Matt can no longer walk, talk, or even eat. He'd probably lost 30 pounds
8: and he was having difficulty keeping the food in his mouth It was just hard to watch. I'm
1: sorry. (sighs) I was very frustrated because we didn't know what's wrong with him. Nobody knew what was going on.
4: Determined to find the root of the problem, doctors scan Matt's brain for abnormalities. The results show areas of damaged tissue or lesions inside his brain.
1: They described it to me as kind of like a little bit of a scarring on the brain.
4: In charge of Matt's case is Dr. Giant Menon. For Dr. Menon, the lesions suggest one of two possibilities.
7: The biggest thinking you you worry about is that if there's a a tumor uh, growing in that area or an infectious uh, process going on.
4: Only a biopsy will reveal the truth.
8: They told us that
4: they were going to be able to
8: perform a biopsy and hopefully get uh, some decision on what was causing his illness.
4: Four weeks after being admitted to the hospital, Matt is finally wheeled into surgery. His friends and family can only wait and hope for the best.
1: We were all anxious for some type of diagnosis.
4: In the OR, Dr. Menon opens up Matt's skull and examines the lesion. But what he sees is perplexing.
7: Matt's brain didn't look normal at all. It didn't look like any typical infection.
4: The doctors report their findings to Sherry and Matt's friend, Mike.
7: They had told us that a
8: large portion of the frontal lobe of Matt's brain had, had died and that there was significant
4: damage to that part of his brain. The surgeons send a sample of the dead tissue to the lab to be analyzed. 10 days later, the lab results are finally back.
7: The pathologic diagnosis from the biopsy came back showing that Matt had a uh, parasite growing in, in his brain.
4: Dr. Menon breaks the news to Matt's wife
1: Dr. Menon pulled me aside and told me that they had confirmed that it was 98% fatal.
7: The biopsy revealed that he had uh, Balamuthia mandrillaris. Balamuthia
4: mandrillaris is a microscopic amoeba with a ravenous appetite. Inside the brain, Balamuthia mandrillaris feeds on brain tissue. Nourished by the nutrient-rich tissue, It grows and reproduces by dividing over and over again. As it proliferates, immune cells and other molecules rush in to fight the infection, causing the brain to swell.
6: That can cause seizures, that can cause coma, that can even cause death.
4: But how did the amoeba get inside Matt's brain? The answer lies in the parasite's life cycle.
6: Balamuthia mandrillaris is a free-living amoeba. That means it doesn't need a host to survive.
4: Encased in a protective coat, balamuthia travels through the air attached to dust particles. Most of the amoebas are blocked by our body's natural defenses. But in rare cases, the parasite evades the immune system and travels through the body's airways to the lungs. There, it enters the bloodstream and travels to the brain. Mike helps the doctors retrace Matt's activities in the weeks leading up to the illness.
8: We went backwards from when the amoeba would have taken hold and symptoms were present, and it was right at the time where Matt was involved in the wildland
4: fires during the Santa Ana winds. When wildfires broke out in Southern California in the fall of 2007, Matt and his colleagues fought to keep the flames at bay. For three weeks, strong seasonal winds kicked up huge quantities of ash, dirt, and dust and along with it, microscopic amoeba. Doctors think that this is when Matt must have inhaled the amoeba.
8: We face a lot of dangers every day we come to work, but nobody ever imagines they're gonna inhale a a single cell amoeba and
4: have it invade their brain. Why was Matt the only firefighter to get sick? The answer appears to lie in Matt's autoimmune condition that makes him more susceptible to infection.
7: He doesn't have the cells in his bones that make antibodies. So this parasite, it was able to, to grow and proliferate in his body.
4: Out of about 100 or so reported victims of this parasite, only a handful have survived. But Sherry refuses to give up hope.
1: I was relieved that they finally had a diagnosis, and now it was time to just cure him. I don't think that I really understood how bad it was. And I just knew my husband just was fighting and fighting all the time for his life.
4: Matt's doctors begin flooding his system with the powerful antibiotic cocktail the few known survivors received.
7: Even though we were literally bathing him in antibiotics, he just kept getting worse and worse.
4: Four weeks later, Matt is on life support.
7: He looked old.
1: And here you have this healthy strong man. And now he looked like he was about 80.
4: March tenth, two 2008. 117 days since Matt first fell ill. The Moore family makes the most difficult decision they've ever faced.
1: As a family we sat down and the kids and I and his parents and his brother and we decided that You know, if he's gonna make it, then he needed to make it the way he wanted to make it and that was off life support.
4: That day, Matt Moore loses his battle against the Balamuthia amoeba. He is surrounded by his family and fellow firefighters when he takes his last breath. He's 43 years old. Today, the Murrieta Fire Department maintains a memorial to their fallen colleague.
1: To have our faith and our family, our friends in the fire department has just been the only way we've been able to make it through this.
8: He's not gone. His legacy lives, and I hope that... um, you know, somewhere in the world, somebody sees this, we can save a life.
4: Doctors stress that early diagnosis gives patients their best chance for survival. Balamuthia mandrillaris lives in the soil in temperate regions around the world. But cases of human infection are extremely rare. Since the early
6: 1990s, only a hundred people worldwide have been diagnosed with this parasite, and most of the victims were either elderly or immunocompromised.
4: Scientists believe that healthy adults can make antibodies against Balamuthia. But when it gets inside a host that is incapable of fighting back, it's a killer. Balamuthia isn't the only deadly parasite that lurks in the soil as one schoolgirl in Oregon is about to discover. 2003, 14-year-old Keisha Kendall lives with her family in rural Camby, Oregon.
9: We live on 18 acres of land. It's pretty far out in the country. My home life is really good. I have my mom and my dad. Um, My older sister lives with me. She's four years older.
4: Keisha shares a special bond with her mom, Amy.
9: I love spending time with my mom. We do a lot of things together, anywhere from movies to just talking.
5: We listen to music together. We garden, basically anything. (laughs) She's a fabulous girl.
4: But the Kendall's have no idea that something is about to shatter their world. It's early May, and Keisha is just waking up.
9: I wake up, um, you know, the lights on, I get dressed, everything's bright and clear, and then when I Um, was standing at my door. I just noticed that something was off. I had really bad depth perception.
4: Keisha's depth perception is so bad that she almost trips down the stairs.
9: They all kind of blended together. Things that were close seemed farther, vice versa. I have never experienced it before in my life.
4: As the day goes on, the problem doesn't go away, but Keisha decides not to tell her mom.
9: I had 20-20 vision, so I just figured that it would go away and everything would be fine again, which is probably why I didn't tell my mom at first.
4: The decision not to speak up is one that she will regret for the rest of her life.
9: I just figured that it would go away and everything would be fine again.
4: But four weeks after the problem began, Keisha notices that her left eye looks different.
9: After about a month, I did notice that when I stared at myself, it would kind of droop a little, something that wasn't noticeable if you were just talking to me.
4: For the first time, Keisha begins to suspect that she might have a more serious problem. Two weeks later, the Kindles are celebrating Keisha's sister's birthday.
9: We were just eating, and I was talking to my mom. And she noticed that, um, my left
5: eye wasn't following with my right eye. I'm looking back and forth from each eye, and one of them is full of life, and the left eye is void. Uh, It's not tracking. I ask her if she's seeing out of it, and she's saying, I'm not seeing a lot out of it. No, I can't see, Mom. And that's the moment I panicked.
4: Amy rushes her daughter to the eye doctor.
9: I remember sitting in the chair and my mom telling my doctor that I couldn't see
5: in my left eye. He said, OK, let's take a look. And um, looked into her right eye and said, well, that one looks good. And then he looked into her left eye. And he looked again into her left eye. And that's when he put his equipment down. And he said, I, I'm going to go make a phone call. I'll be right back.
4: When the doctor returns, he tells them that he's made an emergency appointment at KCI Institute in Portland.
9: I guess I was in shock. The only thing that I knew was we're going up to see some doctors that, you know, would fix my eye and I'd be fine again.
4: (laughs) But Amy is not so confident.
5: I was so worried and concerned. We couldn't, in my opinion, get there fast enough.
4: When they arrive, ophthalmologist Dr. Jonathan Yokin is waiting for them.
2: When I look at Keisha, her right eye appears to be normal, but the left eye has this unusual white pupil.
4: When he examines Keisha's left eye, Dr. Yokin is perplexed by what he finds.
2: I can see that, uh, in fact, her retina is detached.
4: The retina is the part of the eye that sends visual images to the brain. It is located at the back of the eye. If it becomes detached, it can cause blindness.
2: I'm thinking uh, that it's very unusual for a young child to have a sudden retinal detachment.
4: When he takes a closer look, he sees something even more bizarre.
2: And I can see multiple cyst-like structures, of which one of them actually seems to be moving a little bit on its own.
4: A cyst is a fluid-filled sac. It can be caused by an infection, a birth defect, or even a tumor. But Dr. Yokin has never seen a cyst that moves.
2: I, I, I almost uh, dropped the lens that I was using to examine her eye at that point. I think most ophthalmologists would tell you that they've never seen anything like that in their entire career.
5: I didn't know how to react. Something's moving in your daughter's eye. What do you say to that?
9: I was pretty um, creeped out and kind of grossed out that there was something in me.
4: Something is alive inside Keisha's eye. And whatever it is, it's destroying her vision. That's when
5: he said she needed to have her eye operated on as soon as possible.
9: I didn't really know what was going on or why he would suggest that.
5: I guess I was in shock. I, I just wanted to to take my baby and go home. I think that was the hardest point. I just broke down and cried.
4: Keisha is immediately prepped for surgery.
5: I was nervous and um,
9: a little afraid of, you know, um, maybe they wouldn't be able to get everything out.
4: In the O.R., Dr. Yokin makes his first incision into Keisha's left eye.
2: When I open up the eye, there are multiple, maybe 20 to 30 cyst-like structures encased in the vitreous.
4: The vitreous is a jelly-like substance in the eye that separates the lens from the retina. Keisha's is filled with cysts. Dr. Yokin begins extracting them one by one.
2: We've removed approximately 28 cyst-like structures that were moving a little bit on their own. And one had a worm-like structure uh, budding from it.
4: As he removes each cyst, Dr. Yokin hands it off to a team of pathologists. And when they examine the cyst under a microscope, they make a terrifying discovery.
2: After examining the organisms that we've removed from Keisha's eye, it appears it's a tapeworm called Tanea cresiceps.
4: Tania cresiceps is a rare but vicious tapeworm.
6: The adult tapeworm can live inside a host for years without even being detected, but as larvae, they can wreak havoc.
4: If the larvae get inside the human eye, they feast on the jelly-like fluid that fills the eye and chew tiny holes in the retina. The retina eventually detaches, causing blindness.
9: It's kind of a shock um, to find out that there was Um, a parasite that was inside my eye. It was kind of unreal.
5: All I wanted to do was deny, deny, this is not happening. I didn't know what we were facing.
4: Tania Cresiceps is extremely rare in humans. So how did it end up inside Keisha? The answer lies in the parasite's life cycle. Tania Cresiceps begins its life in the intestines of a wild canine, like a coyote. Inside the coyote, the tapeworm reproduces. Its eggs are passed with the coyote's feces and eaten by a rat. When the rat is eaten by an uninfected coyote, the life cycle is repeated. When the doctors interview Amy, she tells them that coyotes often roam across their property.
5: What they finally concluded is that we were probably out gardening and came in for lunch, and the parasite was on her hands.
4: Doctors think that if Keisha failed to wash her hands after working in soil contaminated with the tapeworm, she may have inadvertently ingested the larvae at lunch.
5: It got into her stomach and in turn into her bloodstream and lodged in the eye.
4: In the recovery room, Dr. Yokin shares the results of the surgery with Keisha and Amy.
2: The good news is we're able to remove all the organisms from Keisha's eye. Unfortunately, the retina is too badly damaged to repair it. She will not have any usable vision in the eye.
9: I think I was just shocked to hear that and then I kind of started thinking if I would be able to cope with it and I guess have a normal life.
4: Keisha's battle with the parasite has forever changed her life, in ways she never imagined.
9: I'm very adamant on if anything's wrong, I see a doctor. And I'm just more ambitious to do things, and it's actually made me a stronger person.
4: Tinea Cresiceps is found throughout Canada and the northern United States. To avoid contracting this parasite, People living in areas populated by coyotes, wolves, and foxes should avoid handling soil that may be contaminated with animal feces and always wash their hands thoroughly after outdoor recreation.
6: Tinea crassiceps has an ingenious trait that helps ensure its survival. Its eggs are covered with shells that allow them to survive for months, even outside a host.
4: Everywhere on the planet, parasites are on the hunt Looking for hosts to infect. Lurking all around us. Until it's time to strike. For more disgusting parasites and tips on how to avoid them, visit our website, animalplanet.com slash me.